You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Useless Information Podcast. I am Steve Silverman. Useless Information. It's hard to believe, but this episode marks the 13th anniversary of the Useless Information Podcast. I posted the first three stories, all of which had come from books I had written at the time, on January 26th of 2008. And honestly, I never, ever imagined I'd still be doing this after all these years. Now, you may notice that I sound a bit different. And that's because I decided to invest in a new microphone and mixer for the new year. Now, this is the fourth setup that I've used to record these episodes. And I'm hoping the new gear will make it easier to record, edit, and honestly relax a bit more while I'm speaking. My old setups were just too sensitive to breathing, room sounds, and the cars driving by out on the road. I'm not exaggerating when I say it made the whole recording process a nightmare. Okay, changing topics. Years ago, I rented an apartment in the southern portion of Troy, New York, and right behind the complex was an old cemetery. And I spent a lot of time there riding my bike on its paved roads and reading books while sitting under its trees for shade. In fact, my entire first book was written while sitting under one of those trees. Now, the vast majority of the tombstones were simple and weather-beaten. You could hardly read them, while others were grand and indicative of great wealth. Yet one thing was clear from wandering around the cemetery for the seven years that I lived there. Tombstones say very little about the person that's buried in that particular spot. You know, typically all one gets for an entire life of living is their name, year of birth, and year of death carved into the stone. There's really nothing else. For example, there's a tombstone in St. John's Cemetery in Queens, New York, that has six members of the DeHaul family noted. That's DeHaul, two words, D-E-H-A-L-L, DeHaul. Now, it's an ordinary granite marker that would probably give a passerby no cause to stop and take notice of. Yet if one were to stop, they'd probably be most curious about the name at the very top, Salvatore DeHaul. Chiseled in on the left of his name is the year of his birth, that's 1916, and on the right is the year of his death, 1930. That's a 14-year difference, which I'm sure you'll agree is far too young for anyone to die. And then you start to wonder, how did young Salvatore die? Was it a bad heart? Was it a disease? A tragic accident? Well, the answer is none of the above. It was cold-blooded murder. 
Forgotten today, the trial of his murderer would be front-page news in the New York newspapers for nearly three years. The scene of the crime was at 20 Carlton Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, which is within walking distance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Today, a nondescript warehouse has replaced the three-story brick building that once stood on that site, but on November 24, 1930, that's the day of the crime, it was the home to Mrs. Anna DeHall and her three children. They were 14-year-old Catherine, Salvatore, who was not 14 but really 15 years of age according to the coroner's report, and her son from a previous marriage, that's 26-year-old ex-sailor Michael Filosa. She did have another son, Edward Filosa, who lived next door in the next building with his wife. Anna's husband, that's Frank D. Hall, not De Hall, Frank, middle initial D, Hall, I have no idea how it evolved from D. Hall to De Hall, but anyway, he had left her five years earlier for, you know what, another woman. And without financial support from her estranged husband, Anna earned what she could from the Haskin Garment Company, but it was never enough to make ends meet. After a sighting of her husband in December of 1929, Anna had him arrested for failing to help support their children. Quote, Somebody told me they had seen him, so they told me, and I brought him to the court. Why should I support the children all my life and him living with another woman? Many a night we went to bed without a bite to eat. Patrolman Frank Gregor arrived at the scene of the crime at 12.45 a.m. He later testified, quote, I observed Michael Falosa standing on the stoop of 20 Carlton Avenue and talking with three or four other young men. I asked what the trouble was. He said, My mother, brother, and sister are all cut up. I said, Who done it? He said, I did. What did you do it for? I don't know. Policeman Jesse Lewis would arrive five minutes later. The two entered the apartment and found Salvatore lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. The jugular vein on the right side of his body had been severed, and it was immediately clear that Salvatore had died. His sister Catherine had slashes across her shoulder, cheek, and nose, while Mrs. DeHall had cuts on her back, right arm, and right hand. Officer Gregor went into the mother's bedroom where she shared a bed with Catherine. Quote, Bloodstains all over the bed. He then proceeded to Salvatore's bedroom and described it to be covered with blood, large round circle covered with blood. Patrolman Lewis found a broken razor on the floor and he concluded that that was the weapon used in the brutal attack. Quote, I found it on the floor right near the door going into the mother's bedroom. He added that he found it on the kitchen floor and that, quote, the razor was about four or five feet from the body of Salvatore. That's about 1.2 to 1.5 meters from his body. Frank Grego questioned the mother, Anna DeHall, quote, Who cut you? Did Mike cut you? To which she replied, I don't know. I had some trouble. She was clearly in shock and she was taken to nearby Cumberland Hospital. Patrolman Lewis then asked the son why he did it. His reply was, I don't know. I heard my mother hollering, Mike, Mike, and I looked down and I seen the razor in my hand. Michael Falosa was then arrested and taken into custody, and then later that day his brother Edward went to the Kings County Morgue to identify the deceased body of Salvatore. 
The questioning of Michael Falosa was handled by Assistant District Attorney Bernard Becker. He determined that Mike was hardworking, respectable, and unable to provide much detail about what had happened. Becker stated, quote, Apparently this man has never been in trouble in his life. So far as we can learn, he never quarreled with anyone. He rushed out to get medical attention and help for the victims. Now, Becker was able to piece together from Mike's statements that he had gone to see a violent movie with friends that evening, after which he returned home and went to bed. The next thing he remembers is that he began to hear his mother's agonizing voice, which brought him out of his slumber and to his senses. It was at that point that he noticed the bloody razor in his hand and began to piece together what he had done. Michael Falosa had just slashed his half-brother, half-sister, and mother while he was sleepwalking. Within hours, the story of the sleepwalking murderer was front-page news across the city. The idea that someone could walk around and attack others while not being aware of what was happening seemed like something that could only occur in works of fiction. Reporters interviewed leading psychiatrists and psychologists, and they were mixed in their opinions. Some of the experts said that such an act was theoretically possible, you know, with the attacker being in what they called a twilight state. Yet others disagreed. One prominent Brooklyn doctor stated that this was all, quote, a lot of baloney. On April 27th of 1931, Michael Falosa went on trial for the murder of his half-brother, Salvatore. The defense presented evidence that Mike had been to the movies the prior evening and that he was in a semi-unconscious state when he committed the murder. Of course, the prosecution took the opposite approach and they attempted to prove that no person could commit such a heinous crime while they were asleep. Well, the trial didn't last very long. Mike was convicted of second-degree manslaughter the very next day. Yet County Judge Franklin Taylor wasn't so sure that Filosa was guilty. He told the court, quote, I want the truth and I don't think it's been told here. If someone's being shielded, I want the guilty party to come forward. As you can probably guess, no one was crazy enough to come forward. So Judge Taylor postponed Felosa's sentencing pending further investigation by the district attorney. Now, if you think about it, this is quite an unusual case. Not only was the accused claiming that he slashed his family while sleepwalking, but both the judge and district attorney found fault with the guilty verdict that had been handed down by the jury. I mean, can you think of any other trial where the prosecution was unhappy after winning a case? I can't. Next up, an order was issued for Catherine DeHall to report for further questioning, but she failed to show up. As a result, she was removed from her mother's care and placed with the Children's Society. Her bail was set at $10,000, which is about $173,000 today. On May 11th, Judge Taylor postponed Felosa's sentencing once again. He stated, quote, If the defendant is guilty, he faces the longest sentence. If he is not guilty, then his attempted loyalty to the guilty person is misplaced. He is a young man, but his life will be ruined if he is sentenced. If someone else is guilty, that person is not entitled to such extreme affection. That person is undeserving and should not allow this situation. While awaiting sentencing, Michael was held in the Raymond Street Jail, which was demolished years ago. Patrolman Grego suggested to Edward Falosa that he should go visit his brother and tell him that he was going to, quote, get the limit, which was 15 years at Sing Sing Prison. 
Now, this wasn't necessarily true, but it was intended to get Mike to finally tell what really happened that night. Well, the visit was made on May 24th, and Mike was shocked to hear how much time he may have to serve. All of a sudden, he had a very different story to tell. Whether true or not, Michael Falosa now claimed that he didn't kill his brother. Instead, he now named his mother as the slayer. He told of arriving home that evening from the movie and finding his mother running around the apartment like a madwoman with the bloody razor in her hand. He wrestled the blade away from her, cutting his thumb in the process. Believing he would only serve a year or two in prison, Mike opted to shoulder the blame and concocted that sleepwalking story. The mother, Anna DeHall, was arrested the next day and taken to the Gates Avenue police station. While being questioned, they purposely did not tell her that her son had accused her of murder. Then, on June 1st, Michael Feloso was escorted to the warden's office at the Raymond Street Jail. As soon as he entered, he saw his half-sister Catherine sitting there. He blurted out, Don't open your mouth, Kitty, he added. I've said too much now. They want to frighten you. I'm fed up on this, and I'm through. That's when the district attorney brought the meeting to an abrupt conclusion, telling Feloso, quote, Very well, if that's the way you feel about it, we are also through. The book is closed. Feloso was then escorted back to his cell while Catherine was taken back to the Children's Society. Not long after she arrived, Catherine changed her mind and told of what she knew. Quote, It was about half past ten when I went to bed. I woke up with a sharp pain on my cheek and felt blood. A woman was bending over me. I knew it was a woman because she had long hair. She was a stockily built woman. Then I heard the door open and shut and I heard Michael's voice. I saw the form of a man come into the bedroom. He tussled with the woman for something she held. They fell on the bed. The man then went to a chair and put something under the leg of the chair and pulled up. I then turned on the light and I saw my mother and Michael. He was dressed in his Sunday clothes. He took off these clothes and put on khaki pants before he went out to call a doctor and the police. I saw my brother Salvatore lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. Michael said to me, Kitty, if you ever did me a favor, don't say anything about what you saw here tonight. Then, five days later, the news story that the mother had committed the crime quickly came into question when medical doctors concluded there was absolutely no way that Mrs. DeHall could have inflicted her wounds on herself. Someone else had to have done it. So could her son Michael have done it after all? Well, clearly someone is not telling the truth here. As you probably guessed at trial, Anna DeHall refuted the testimony of her three surviving children. Yet on July 1st, 1931, it took just one ballot for the jury to unanimously find her guilty of murder in the second degree. As she was escorted out of the courtroom, Anna exclaimed, God knows I'm innocent. Well, this created an interesting situation. Two people were found guilty by a jury of their peers for independently committing the same crime. One would presume that Michael Falosa would have been immediately set free after the conviction of his mother, but Judge Taylor opted to hold off on that decision. Quote, From the very beginning, I had my opinion as to who committed this crime. I felt that Michael Falosa was shielding somebody. However, if the appellate court should set aside the conviction of the mother, I will not allow my opinion to stand against that of 12 men of the jury that convicted Michael Falosa. 
I would send Michael Filosa away for the limit sentence if the conviction of his mother was set aside. The trial of Filosa reeked with perjury. He himself was part of the conspiracy to frustrate justice. He is worthy of no sympathy. There was also perjury in the trial of the mother. I am not going to dispose of the case of the son until there's been a final disposition on the charges against the mother, because I do not intend to let any conspiracy to be successfully carried out that would free everybody of any guilt of this kind. On September 8, 1931, Anna de was brought into the courtroom for sentencing. When asked if she had anything to say, she tearfully stated, quote, I've done nothing. I was cut myself. I lost a beautiful boy, and they say I murdered him. God was betrayed, and for his sake I am satisfied to be betrayed. She then turned toward her family in the back of the courtroom and added, I thank you, my children. Mrs. DeHall was sentenced to serve 20 years to life at Auburn Prison, which is located in the Finger Lakes region of New York State. An appeal was immediately filed arguing that Anna DeHall did not receive a fair trial. Among her claims were one, the medical opinion that she could not have inflicted her own wounds was never introduced. Second, she's required to use the same exact defense lawyer as her son Michael. That just doesn't seem fair. Third, her lawyer didn't call witnesses who were willing to testify on her behalf. And four, she wasn't permitted to tell her entire story at the trial. Now, it bounced around the courts for a bit, so it wouldn't be until June 17th of 1932. Keep in mind the murder was in November of 1930. On June 17th, 1932, the appellate court ordered a new trial. The second trial got underway on March 27th of 1933. Now, the transcript of the trial is available online, and it provides direct quotes from all those who testified. But unfortunately, it runs nearly 100 pages, so I'm not going to read the entire thing to you. Instead, here are just a few brief excerpts from the principal witnesses. Anna's son Edward was the first to be called to the witness stand. He described his encounter with his mother when he first entered the apartment. Quote, She was in a rage and she said to me, No, 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 my boy didn't do it. I done it. I do not know whether she said that in protection of the boy or not, but that is the remark she passed on to me. He recalled her stating, quote, My boy Mikey didn't do it. Daughter Catherine had been asleep when she was slashed and described the moment she woke up. Quote, I do not know where I was first cut, but I know the cut that I first felt was on one of my shoulders. When questioned as to who cut her on the face, she replied, My mother. She then went on to discuss how her mother had been widely jealous because her children had spent a lot of time with their father. Catherine believed that it was Salvatore's decision to go live with his father permanently that pushed her mother over the edge. Michael Falosa detailed exactly what happened that evening. Around 7 p.m. he attended a movie at the Duffield Theater, which I should tell you is long gone. It's been replaced by a Planet Fitness. Anyway, after grabbing a bite to eat, he arrived at the front stoop of his home to meet up with some friends. From there, he went to get a cup of coffee before he returned right back to that front stoop. And he hung out there for a bit, and then he entered the building around midnight. Shortly after he walked into the apartment, Michael found his brother Salvatore dying dead on the kitchen floor. After that, he spotted his mother on her bed with a straight razor in her hand. Quote, I tried to snatch the razor from my mother. 
In doing so, his mother received some minor wounds, and his hand was cut. Once gaining possession of the weapon, he placed the blade under the leg of a chair and, quote, I snapped the razor. Michael then went back to his room and noticed there was a blood stain on his shirt. So he took it off and he washed out the stain in a sink. He changed his clothes and then he ruffled up the bed to make it look like he had slept in it. Next, he told his mother to pretend that she was asleep. Quote, Keep quiet and wake up and say you found me there by the door. His family was in urgent need of medical help, so he rushed out to the front stoop and told the boys that, quote, everybody in the house was cut. And at first they didn't believe Mike, but he made it clear that he wasn't fooling around. I told him to hurry up and get an ambulance. From there, he went next door to awaken his brother. When asked if he had done the slashing, Mike replied, quote, I don't know, Edward, whether I did it. I may have done it, but I don't know. As you can imagine, Anna DeHaul had a very different story to tell a court. She denied having argued with any of her children that day. Quote, I had just come home from benediction, from church, and we took a sandwich and the whole three of us went to bed. The next thing I remember, I felt like suffocating. I couldn't get my breath. I was all wet because I was completely all full of blood. I called for my little girl. She was fast asleep. We slept with no lights. I says to her, Katie, wake up, Katie, maybe the gas is on. I'm suffocating. And my little girl, she pulled the light and the light went up because the light in the room has got nothing to do with the kitchen. So she pulled the light and the light went on and I was covered with blood. I was cut. She continued, When I woke up when the light went up, I was calling, Mickey, Mickey, look at me. I am all covered with blood. My boy stood up just this way in between the two doors with his BVDs, and he came and he said, Mother, who did that? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm all covered with blood. So he said, wait a while and I'll get somebody to help you. So he put on his overalls, khaki pants, and went out to get help. When he moved, I seen him a little bit like red as if this was the bedroom, and in the back of him when he walked out, the boy was like red in the back. When questioned as if she had slashed Salvatore, Mrs. DeHall replied, quote, No, why should I? He was my best boy. I had given him three years of high school, and I am only a poor working woman. At 3.35 p.m. on March 31st of 1933, the jury retired to consider its verdict. They returned just a short time later at 5.15 with a decision. Quote, we find the defendant guilty of murder in the second degree, as charged in the indictment. Several days later, a motion was made for Michael Falosa's release. Judge Taylor said he would wait until his mother was sentenced before he dismissed the charges, but in the meantime, he did allow him to be released on $5,000 bail. Now, at that point, uh, his story fell out of the news, but there was a story a little bit later on that said he was driving a cab. That's all I know. Anyway, on April 5th, 1933, Anna DeHaul was sentenced to 8 to 30 years in prison. Probation laws at the time allowed three months of credit for each year of good behavior, so she'd be required to serve a minimum of six years. She was released on parole in 1940. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. From New York, the George Burns and Gracie Allen Show for Hormel and Sam. Thank you.
George and Gracie. Spam, oh boy. Spam, what joy. George Burns, Gracie Ellis, on show when his orchestra singing glee with a smoothie sweet. To start the fun, here's Jimmy Wellington. Another Monday night at your house, and time for Burns and Allen, and time for you to discover the way women all over the country have learned how to give the family a breakfast that is different. Serve Spam fried. Spam is tender, tasty meat, a perfect blend of sweet, juicy pork shoulder meat and ham cooked to a savory goodness. Made only by Hormel, Spam is packed in a handy can, so all you do is open it, cut off slices of Spam, and fry quickly in a hot pan. Serve sizzling hot with eggs or a stack of wheat cakes. And you'll start the family off in the morning with a meal that sticks to the ribs. Try Spam Fried, the quickest, tastiest breakfast you've had in many a day. But start right and get the real thing. Be sure to ask your food dealer for S-P-A-M, Spam. That commercial for Spam is from the March 17, 1941 episode of Burns and Allen. This particular episode was titled St. Patrick's Parade, and Burns and Allen is without a doubt my favorite old-time radio program of all time. Now, Gracie Allen, she was simply incredible as the ditzy wife, and George Burns was excellent as her straight man. Now, if you've never heard the show before, simply head over to archive.org, and they have a large number of their radio shows there that you can listen to for free. In fact, they also have episodes of their television show that you can watch for free. As for Spam, (laughs) it was introduced by Hormel Foods on July 5th of 1937. And the purpose of the product was to increase the sales of pork shoulder, which was an unpopular cut. The name is accredited to a guy named Ken Danew, the brother of a company executive. And supposedly he was awarded $100 for naming their new product, which is about $1,800 today. It's generally thought that Spam is short for spiced ham, although Hormel has apparently never publicly confirmed this. What made Spam so unique back then was that it required no refrigeration. You know, today we take refrigeration for granted, but many people were still using ice boxes in the 1930s. In fact, my great-grandfather in the 1930s, he was still delivering coal in the winter and ice in the summer in New York City. The fact that it didn't need refrigeration also made it ideal for wartime. You know, just think how complicated it must have been to ship fresh meat to troops that were halfway around the world. Well, Spam was the perfect solution. The United States alone purchased 150 million pounds of Spam during World War II. That's about 68 million kilograms. It became so ubiquitous that soldiers gave Uncle Sam the nickname of Uncle Spam. So just what is Spam? Well, clearly it's a pork product, but what else is in the can? Well, the original flavored Spam also contains salt, water, modified potato starch as a binder, sugar, and sodium nitrate as a preservative. 
Now, if you've ever opened up a can, one of the first things you'll notice is that it's gelatinous. This is natural and occurs while the cans are being cooked on the production line, so it's nothing to worry about. So here's some numbers for you. The billionth can of Spam was produced in 1959. The seventh billionth can was produced in 2007. And number eight billion was sold in 2012. And who eats the most Spam? It turns out that it's Guam. They eat 16 cans per person every single year. I guess that makes up for the fact that I eat none. (laughs) Now, clearly spam has been the subject of many jokes, perhaps most famously in the Monty Python spam sketch that was first broadcast back in 1970. It takes place in a restaurant filled with Vikings where everything on the menu has spam in it, and the Vikings are constantly repeating spam over and over and over again. You know, spam, 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 spam. If you've never seen the sketch, just go over to YouTube. They do have it there. It's hilarious. Anyway, the sketch is generally believed to be a commentary on the ubiquitous nature of spam in the United Kingdom during World War II. Hard to believe I used the word ubiquitous twice in the same segment. Anyway, in the 1980s, as text-based electronic bulletin boards gained popularity, abusive users of these boards have been bombarded by the word spam so many times, you know, just like in that routine, that it would push the abuser's postings right off of the screen. And that would be the beginning of the use of the word spam to describe all types of unsolicited messages. I'm guessing it's probably not the type of publicity that Hormel was looking for. With the recent airing of the final original episode of Jeopardy with longtime host Alex Trebek, you know, who passed away on November 8th, I thought I'd ask you a question about the show. Do you know the official name of the song that plays during Final Jeopardy? So hopefully to avoid copyright issues, I'm just going to play four notes. So can you name that song in four notes? Name that tune. And if you can't, don't worry about it. I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In other news, here are three stories that all have to do with proposed technologies for automobiles that just never quite caught on. A new accessory that buyers of Plymouth Dodge, Chrysler, DeSoto, and Imperial vehicles, all manufactured by the Chrysler Corporation at the time, option they could opt for in 1956 was the Highway Hi-Fi system. It was a specially developed record player that was mounted in a shockproof case that was installed just below the central portion of the dashboard. Now, anyone who's old enough to remember records knows that they were notorious for skipping, but that was not so with the Highway Hi-Fi player. Tests demonstrated that it was nearly impossible to make the needle jump a groove, no matter how bumpy a ride may be. Six long play records could be stored in the Highway Hi-Fi's case, but these were not ordinary records. They were specially designed by CBS Laboratories and were 7 inches in diameter. That's about 17.8 centimeters. Each side could play up to 45 minutes of music or one hour of speech. I'm just amazed how many kids want to have record players today. Honestly, no matter how careful I was with them, they always got scratched somehow. Next up, we have tires that were developed by the Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company that were first introduced to the public in 1960. The cool thing about these tires is they could be lit up in a rainbow of colors. This wasn't done by having light bulbs of varying colors just shine down from above. Instead, the tires were made from a specially compounded synthetic rubber named neothane, and it was translucent in nature. The tires were made by pouring the liquid neothane into molds, a colored dye was then added, and then it was cured in an industrial oven. So forget about those boring black rubber tires. These neothane tires could be made in hot pink, green, blue, or whatever color suited the buyer's taste. To light up the tires, electrical current was fed through a special wiring device to 18 small bulbs that were mounted in the rim. These tires were most famously installed in the Golden Sahara II, which was a late 1950s concept car, but these vibrant, colorful tires never, ever caught on. There are pictures of the tires online, so be sure to check them out. They are quite cool. Now, my hunch is that if they were reintroduced today, a lot of buyers would purchase them to spruce up their wheels. Lastly, in the days prior to airbags, that round thing jutting out of the dashboard of your car, you know, the steering wheel, it could be deadly in a head-on crash. Not only that, but the steering wheel can block out portions of the instrument panel, and at times it can even obstruct the driver's vision. So in 1965, aerospace engineer Robert J. Rump set out to redesign the steering wheel in an attempt to overcome these problems. His solution was called the Wrist Twist Instant Steering System, and it consisted of two 5-inch or 12.7-centimeter plastic rings that were located to the left and right of where a standard steering wheel would sit. Think of an elongated airplane yoke with two small rings at either end, and then you can envision what it looked like. The positioning of these two wheels removed them from both the line of sight and from possible impact with one's head in an accident. Installed in Ford 1965 Mercury Park Lane convertibles, one could use one or both of these little wheels, which were tied together by a chain, to steer the vehicle. 
Driving was supposedly simplified with the wrist twist system, but those who had an opportunity to test drive one of the vehicles outfitted with it found that it was less intuitive to learn than a standard steering wheel. There is a video of the wrist twist system in action on YouTube. Now, it is a bit sexist in its implication that women are inferior drivers, but it clearly shows how it works. I had a laugh when a woman demonstrated how easy it was to parallel park with this new steering system. But if you watch carefully, another car is moving backwards. In other words, she was really driving out of the parking space and they ran the film in reverse to make it look like she was parking the car with ease. Well, clearly the wrist twist system never caught on. And it's hard to say why, but my guess is that it made a simple device far more complicated than it needed to be. So early in the podcast, I'd asked you what the name was of the song that plays during Final Jeopardy. Did you know? Well, the answer makes a lot of sense. It's simply titled, Think. Now, Jeopardy was the brainchild of talk show host Merv Griffin. Well, sort of. Credit really should go to his wife. Quote, My wife Jillian just came up with the idea one day when we were in a plane bringing us back to New York from Duluth. I was mulling over game show ideas when she noted there had not been a successful question and answer game on the air since the quiz show scandals. Why not do a switch and give the answers to the contestant and let them come up with the question? She fired a couple of answers to me, 5,280, and the question, of course, was how many feet in a mile. Another one was 79 Wistful Vista. That was Fibber and Molly McGee's address. I love the idea, went straight to NBC with the idea, and they bought it without even looking at a pilot show. The show premiered on the network on March 30th of 1964 and was hosted by Art Fleming. As hard as it is to believe, the show was canceled in 1975. But luckily Merv had another show in the works that premiered on January 6th of that same year. That was three days after the last Jeopardy! episode. Maybe you've heard of it. Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) Well, Jeopardy! had a couple of unsuccessful attempts at revival after that, but it wasn't until September 10th of 1984... That's when a syndicated version of the show with Alex Trebek as host launched and became the runaway smash hit that it is today. As for the song Think, Merv wrote that as a lullaby for his son and it was originally titled A Time for Tony. Griffin, who passed away in 2007, estimated that that little bit of a song earned him over $70 million over the course of his lifetime. And by the way, there are lyrics to the song. I'm not going to sing it for you. We're in trouble, trouble deep, we're imperiled and endangered, we're in trouble, yes indeed, we are all in jeopardy. Well, that brings the 144th episode of the Useless Information podcast to a close. I stumbled across that story of the sleepwalking murder the day after I finished recording the last episode. I was just perusing through old newspapers that morning and I became intrigued by Michael Falosa's unusual claim. Now, speaking of that last story, in an odd coincidence, I posted the last story on The Grateful Mother at 12 a.m. on December 21st. Now, keep in mind the story hadn't seen the light of day in years. But then, six hours later, a similar story was published in the Akron Beacon Journal, and then was republished a few days later in USA Today. I encourage you to check out their version of the story because it includes an interview with Helen Arnold's oldest son. So a couple of weeks ago, my wife pointed out a story in our local newspaper, the Albany Times Union, and it told of two local history teachers who had just started a podcast, and they were already in the top 10% of all the podcasts worldwide 
according to the podcast tracker listen notes. Now, as I read the details, they had put out 15 episodes and had just 3,000 downloads. That really didn't seem like a whole lot to be in the top 10% worldwide. So I decided to check out to see where my podcast ranked, where this podcast ranked. And out of 1,896,654 podcasts, I was surprised to find that I was in the top 0.5% worldwide. Roughly assuming those numbers are right, that would mean that this podcast is in the top 9,500 of all podcasts. I'm certainly not complaining, but what that really means is that there's a lot of podcasts out there that nobody is listening to. I should mention that I did recently sign a contract to continue this show for another two years, so that'll assure 15 years of the podcast. Now, we'll have to see what happens between now and then because it's hard to tell where podcasting is going. There's certainly been an explosion of smaller podcasts recently. In fact, there were nearly 900,000 new podcasts last year. But the big corporations are quickly swallowing up the most successful operations, I guess in an attempt to grab market share to get all those advertising dollars. I do know that both Spotify and Apple are developing a premium subscription service for podcasts, you know, kind of like Netflix or Apple Music. Not only that, but the companies are purchasing the producers of some of these shows. For example, Amazon recently purchased Wondery, which sometimes runs promos on my show, and Spotify recently acquired Megaphone, and that's the platform that my podcast is on, although I really have no direct contact with them. Just a general reminder that my new book, The Flipside History, is currently available. So if you enjoy listening to the stories that I include in this podcast, I highly encourage you to get a copy of the book. Be sure to sign up for my Twitter feed. It's at UselessInfoCast, and you'll be among the first to know when a new episode's released. Again, the handle is at UselessInfoCast. Also, be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information Podcast, and the link should pop up. Make sure that you subscribe to the Useless Information Podcast, and you can do so through whichever platform you use. It could be Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeart, Spotify, TuneIn. There's a whole long list. I get a new one just about every single week. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you're doing well. Take care, everyone. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.